0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is J.W. Judge, author of the debut novel, Vulcan Rising. J.W., welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Sure. If someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Vulcan Rising, how would you describe the novel? All right. So it's just a regular family
1: in Birmingham, or at least uh, the husband thinks they're a regular family. In Birmingham, some uh, unusual things start to occur around the house, and he realized there are things about his wife that he does not know. And then uh, when their son turns up missing, all the secrets start to come out.
0: And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing the Vulcan Rising? Yeah, I do. And
1: uh, so the, I, I guess the the inciting incident for the whole novel was really a, a dream. I woke up from one morning and I, I don't mind telling it here um, because it's at the very beginning of the book. I had a dream that I heard uh, a loud noise outside and then that woke me up and I couldn't figure out what the noise was. But then I saw some people going into the woods behind my house in the middle of the night, and that struck me as unusual. So I grabbed a handgun and went outside to see what was going on. And then a few minutes later, while I'm waiting, three men emerge from the woods carrying a large animal, and I... Confronted them and uh, calamities ensued from there. And so that's the dream that I had. And then there were a couple other uh, episodes with my then five year old where just kind of, you know, strange kid things happened, but they clicked off in my imagination. And there were about three things that I just wrote down scenes from independently of each other with no real idea of that they would be anything other than me just writing things down. And then the third thing happened and it clicked to me that these could all be put together and become a novel. And I had at that point written two novels that had kind of are parts of two novels, uh, 20, 25 percent that hadn't really gone anywhere. So I just kind of launched into this thing in August of last year and over the next three and a half months, just banged the whole thing out
0: and you mentioned that you had written these two previous novels you said 20 to 25% before you um got the idea and started working on Vulcan Rising I- i'm just curious um because i know that you do have a legal career is is fiction writing something that you had always been interested in yes it's something i've always
1: been interested in but not something i've always done when i was Younger in high school and in college, and the years after that, I did a lot of creative writing as far as poetry. I wrote some short stories, but then you know I got into a, a teaching career, and grad school, and then law school and law practice, and all of that kind of fell by the wayside. Even though I knew I want to write a novel, it, it, and so it that stagnated. I wrote three nonfiction books about law practice. And then I learned one of the, one of those two novels was based on, or I guess I fully intend to finish it is based on this really dark part of a family history. I didn't know anything about that occurred in 1940. And so that one's going to be a historical fiction. Um, And so the short answer is novel writing is something I always wanted to do. and. Once I started it, I discovered that it is way harder than I had even anticipated, but so much more gratifying to do
0: as well. So I'm curious, can you elaborate more? Like what is the hard part for you? You're just making everything up
1: as you go (laughs) (laughs) and you're making all of these decisions of what so Vulcan rising set in Birmingham and I was able to, since I live here and have lived here for the last 17 years, use it as a setting that's, you know, there's not a lot of fiction books set here. And I, I think that that was fun for me to be able to do and include a lot of specificity that if you're from here, you'll appreciate. And if you're not from here, um, you, you have enough information to go on and kind of get a, a tone of the city and, and what it's like. Um, it's just, it's the decision making. And you know, in my law practice, I have to do so much writing and brief writing that there's some days that the idea of doing more writing and making more decisions and burning more
0: mental calories just can be really daunting. And I'm curious, what was your writing process for Vulcan Rising? You talked about having these dreams and these ideas that you thought could be tied together into a novel. When you sat down to write, were you just writing from those kind of dream ideas? Did you sit down and do any kind of outlining? What was that process like for you? So, when I initially started, I just
1: launched into it without any planning. I mean, I had some ideas about where I thought the story would go. Um, but very early on, after I'd written about four or five chapters, I have a friend who, well, at that point was really an acquaintance that I knew through an online community who had some teaching experience and is a lawyer. And so I sent her these and said, tell me what you think. Cause I knew that I would get a real opinion and critical insight and you know just good feedback. It's somebody that even though I didn't know her well, I knew I could trust her to tell me if the answer was please never touch a keyboard again, then like I I knew that she would tell me that. And so I sent her those and she said, okay, this one person who you've got as a side character, I think could be way more interesting. And I realized that she was right and it changed the whole direction of the book. And At that point, I realized, okay, I need to be more organized than what I am. I've been reading, I have read in the past Story Grid by Sean Coyne and have listened to the Story Grid podcast and, you know, a half dozen other podcasts or more on reading and, I mean, on writing and, you know, some of its craft and some of its business because I've been doing the nonfiction writing since 2016 as well. So, Um, what I did was I used that story grid framework and created my own spreadsheet. Um, and used another book by Sean Coyne called Action Story, where he kind of goes and hits all the beats and obligatory scenes that an action novel needs to have. And so I just built a framework for myself of, you know, here are the things I need to make sure to do along the way. And that helped me to construct the novel. And, um, you know, even though it continued to change, and even as I got toward the end of it, the end changed and I realized this is going to be a series and not a standalone book like I thought it was going to be. I had something to go back to. I had a foundation and a framework so that I didn't lose myself, even as I made the changes.
0: And are you working on a sequel now, The Vulcan Rising?
1: I am. Uh, I, it's going to be called Walls Ascending, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and I've set a pre-order date for January of 2022,
0: so I'm I'm rocking on it, too, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. That's great. Well, given your experience with writing and now publishing Vulcan Rising, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? For people who are, if
1: you're struggling, because Lord knows I did, is, you know, there's days where you just feel like the words are terrible <laughs> and I, this, and, and it's just hard is my best advice is just get it down on paper. And this isn't a thought that's original to me. You can always revise and edit what you write, but you can't change what you don't put down on the page. So just push through it. And, you know, there's a lot of times that in the darkest parts, you're going to look back and realize, okay, this was better than what in my head I thought it was in the moment or feared that it was. Um, Or maybe it's not. And you need to go in and do a whole bunch of revisions and editing and get some help from folks.
0: But you can only do that if you finish the work. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? So I just finished um,
1: the new Andy Weir book. I was on vacation last week, uh, Project Hail Mary, and I really loved it. I thought that it was comparable with as good as The Martian was, and I really loved it. I've read a couple of things um, I've been on a science fiction and fantasy kick here for about the last eight or nine months. And so I've read a couple of different books by Lee Bardugo and some Brandon Sanderson and Neil Gaiman. And, you know, those are people that at this point, I'm I know those aren't new names to people, but those are names of people that I've read their books. And at this point I'll read anything they put out.
0: That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel Vulcan Rising? Sure, they can find me at
1: jwjudge.com. I blog about my writing experiences and craft things at expectantwriter.com and then whatever social media platforms you like to use, I can be found at, you know, I'm most active on
2: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
0: Well, again, we've been speaking with J.W. Judge, author of the debut novel, Vulcan Rising. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And J.W., thanks for doing this interview.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Great. Now stay tuned as J.W. Judge reads from the second chapter of his novel, Vulcan Rising
1: Joseph was awakened by a strange noise that came from outside he propped himself up with an elbow straining to hear what was no longer there to be heard he had been sleeping so hard and was entirely unable to discern how loud or quiet the noise had been what was that he asked don't know came Agatha's croaky response did it sound like an animal don't know I was too asleep joseph swung his legs off the bed and padded over to the window. He peered through the blinds. The moon bathed the ground and trees in soft light. Joseph, having forgotten to look at the clock as he traipsed across the room, judged that it must be very early in the morning now, by the way the half-moon hung above the western sky. All was still and quiet, no indications that anything was amiss. But as he got ready to return to bed, two figures in dark hoodies and pants emerged from the gap between his house and his neighbors, and walked into the woods behind the houses disappearing into the darkness. Moments later, another noise. He stared into the tree line but saw nothing. All right, he whispered to himself, having decided what to do next. Joseph walked to his nightstand, pulled open the top drawer, and retrieved his Smith & Wesson 40 caliber. It had lain dormant in there for a long time in anticipation of a moment like this one. Joseph pulled on a sweatshirt, pants, and a pair of moccasins. Going to check on something, he said to Agatha, who had already closed her eyes again. Mm-hmm. With the pistol snugly in his right hand, he crossed the house to the front door, which he opened and closed with his left hand. He reached under the doormat for the key and locked the door behind him. Joseph stayed pressed against the house as he walked around the front and down the opposite side as the intruders were out. He wished the siding were a darker color to hide his movement, but he couldn't do anything about that now. He reached the bottom of the driveway and stopped. Waiting. For what? He had no idea. He couldn't very well go stalking into those woods. Joseph realized that he should have grabbed a flashlight or headlamp, anything that would provide illumination. He patted his pockets. He hadn't even brought his phone. So he waited. The only movement was his breath emerging from his mouth and dissipating into the night air. A shrill animal scream ripped the silence apart. To Joseph, it sounded like a horse, or perhaps a donkey, something in that family. Still, he saw nothing. Movement. Three figures emerged from the woods. One was much bulkier than the other two and moved awkwardly. As they exited the shadows into the moonlight, Joseph made out that the third man was carrying something, which contributed to his bulk. Whatever it was struggled against him. The three men moved quickly without running, and they weren't headed in the direction they'd come from. They were coming toward his side of the house. Joseph had no idea what to do. Whether to do anything, they were closing ground, not a dozen yards from the bottom of the driveway where Joseph had all but made himself a part of the house. As the darkly clad men came parallel with him, Joseph finally discerned that the third man's burden was a horse, and a young one, a foal. Something was wrong with it. Halt, Joseph commanded, surprising himself and everyone else. All three men jerked to a stop, turning in the direction of the sound. The fool whinnied and bucked. It arched its head backward as if trying to headbutt its captor. Halt, asked one of the men. Yeah, stop. Joseph found that he had raised his pistol in their direction. He expected his hand to be shaky. While he was nervous about the situation, his hands were steady. Muscle memory and training were funny things when they took over, even if the skills had been dormant for a few years. The same voice said, Okay, we're stopped. Now what? Joseph didn't know now what. He hadn't had a plan to this point. I'm going to need you to leave. What did you think we were doing? said the man carrying the horse. The first voice had belonged to the other man wearing a hoodie. Those two flanked the man who hadn't spoken yet. A man who had dressed absurdly well for the situation black slacks and dress shirt and a nice pair of western boots. Not work boots like the other two. He was definitely the head honcho. The three men stood in a cluster. All three were larger men than Joseph, although he found it difficult to gauge the size of the man carrying the full. The lead man finally spoke. Why don't you step out from the shadow and we can sort this out? Joseph realized his advantage, however slight. I'm good. Put down the horse and be on your way. Horse, scoffed the first voice. That's not a... Shut up, the man in black instructed. The left-hand man leaned forward as if to set the animal down. The man in black pointed at him, don't, and the third man re-uprighted himself. We will not do that. We're not going to take the horse and be on our way. No, you aren't, Joseph countered. He had no inkling why he cared what happened to this animal. But whatever was happening seemed inherently bad, evil possibly. Enough of this, said the middle voice. He ordered, Gary, handle it. The man on Joseph's right began stalking toward him. Reaching into the front pocket of his hoodie. A deafening bark. A flash of light. Gary fell into a sitting position, holding his belly. The sounds of the night had stopped. Or maybe it was just that Joseph no longer heard them. His vision was interrupted. The imprint of a flame overlay anything that he looked at directly. His peripheral vision showed him that neither of the two men were moving. Now you're going to go, Joseph said, and you'll leave the horse. Gary had fallen onto his side and was moaning. Joseph gave further instructions. Set the horse down, gently. The third man squatted down slowly, setting the animal on the concrete. For the first time now that two arms were no longer wrapped around it, Joseph realized that it wasn't a horse. It was, what was it? Y'all go on now and take Gary there with you. No one objected, though the lead man lingered, his head tilted to the side. He watched Joseph as if deciding what to make of him. Then he and the third man got on either side of Gary and started trying to get him upright. His human crutches, like a football player being helped off the field, Gary's clothes glistened darkly in the moonlight. He would have to be all but carried. He moaned a great deal as they jostled him. Eventually, the third man, a hulking figure, picked Gary up and carried him like an infant. Joseph watched until they limped into the shadows of the trees that canopied the street and beyond his eyesight. Within a minute, Taillights ignited. The reverse lights flickered as the drive put the vehicle into gear. The V8 engine thrummed as it accelerated and carried them into the night. Joseph heard the front door open and close. Agatha asked, Honey, is everything okay? Joseph remembered the horsish thing lying in the driveway behind him. It wouldn't do for her to see that. He shoved the pistol into the waistband at the small of his back and remembered all the times he thought movies were ridiculous when they had somebody do that but he'd never considered that there was nowhere else to put it when you didn't have a holster. He was just glad the barrel wasn't still hot. He jogged around toward the front of the house. His wife was walking his direction as he rounded the corner. Yeah, baby, just, um, a, uh, fox. A fox? I was looking out the back window but never saw anything. Joseph was relieved. Yeah, he came around the side. Did you get him? She asked. Yeah. Gotta take him back into the woods and get rid of him, Joseph said. Now? Now? Tonight, she asked. Got to. He'll attract coyotes and buzzards. Just go back to bed and I'll be back shortly. All right, be careful. Yep, will do. Joseph turned around to go the way he'd come. When he reached the side of the house again, he saw that the horse creature stood looking at him. It was young, not more than a few weeks old. He just couldn't believe that he was seeing things correctly. Wings. On a horse. He walked toward the animal slowly. As he got about 40 feet away, the foal got nervous. It started looking around a little wildly and shuffling its hooves. Whoa, boy, Joseph said in not more than a whisper. He held out his hands in front of him in what he thought would be a non-threatening gesture. I'm not going to hurt you. Just want to see if I can help. He walked as he talked, slowly. The foal seemed to settle a bit. Joseph approached to just beyond arm's length and stopped. They stood taking each other in. Maybe the wings were some sort of prank, some attachment the guys had put on its back. None of this made a good deal of sense. And why was there a horse in the woods? Whatever the answer, this was clearly a beautiful creature, all white with a pale mane, white wings that folded up onto its back. The moonlight gave it an ethereal quality. Joseph spoke softly to the animal again. Hey, boy, where did you come from? Is your mama around? As he spoke, he stepped forward and raised his left hand to rub its head between the eyes. The foal snorted and shook its head at the approach, but didn't back away. Joseph kept talking and made contact. After a minute, the foal pushed back against his hand. With his right hand, Joseph rubbed its neck. That a boy. Nothing to be scared of. Now, I'm just going to reach over here to your shoulder. Good boy. He didn't know whether the talking was helping the animal. It didn't seem to be hurting, though, and oddly, it was helping him. The sound of his voice kept him grounded in an otherworldly situation. He didn't know whether the fool was in fact a boy, but that also seemed inconsequential in the moment. Joseph continued to scratch and pet its head with the left hand while migrating his right back to its wings. Holy cow, he whispered. Those are really yours, aren't they? Yep, there. I can feel it coming up right through your hide. When Joseph started handling its wings, the foal shrugged its shoulders and shuddered. Then it unfolded them. A majestic transformation. Joseph took an involuntary step backwards. It was white as a ream of printer paper. He realized this was probably a dumb analogy, but it's the first thing that came to him. A wingspan greater than the length of its body from head to tail. Wow, buddy, that's... I mean... Wow. Joseph took to petting its head and neck again and it tucked its wings away. What are you called? Not a unicorn. You don't have a horn. It occurred to Joseph that paying closer attention during literature class would have been helpful about now. Icarus? No, that's a Greek guy. What did he do? Fly too close to the sun. Hang on. You're a pegasus, aren't you? That's the one with wings, right? Except you're not real. How can you be? I'm just losing my mind or something. Which is fine, I guess. The pegasus nuzzled him. We're going to need to get you back home.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.